Hey kids, Stacy of Two Moms Media here. Stay tuned after this episode for a promo of what I'll be working on when I finish this season of Smoke. From Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local in Warren, Pennsylvania, this is Smoke, the disappearance of Damien Sharp. After going over the report and realizing that the uh, search that was done in Morrison Run had resulted in a dog hitting near a campsite, and then several other dogs were brought in and they also hit, uh, there was something about a bone being found, and the search ended and it was never finished. Uh, the search at the Kinzu Dam was also ended when the entire area had not been checked. I interviewed Sergeant Burns of the Warren County Sheriff's Office, who is a uh, member of the dive team, and uh, Burns told me that it was true that the search team had not completed its search when the detail was called off and it was never rescheduled. We spoke with uh, District Attorney Richard Hernan about searching the areas again and uh, also about searching Sarver's old apartment on Prospect Street. So we've worked our way up to March 11th, 2003, when the chief of the City of Warren Police Department called private investigator John Herzog hired by Damien's family the previous autumn to ask if he'd investigate the case for them instead. Portman then called Damien's aunt Dana to ask if she'd pay Herzog to do that. Dana hung up from Portman and called John Herzog to say she thought it was kind of messed up that they would ask that, and Herzog told her that she should think about it so he could let Portman know if he was going to help. I'm really sorry, I know. I'm letting law enforcement down real hard right now and probably making my entire life much harder in the process, but that reads to me like a Cosa Nostra style shakedown if ever I heard one, and I hate it. I hate everything about it. There. One thing checked off our to-do list right up front. Nice. So that happened on page 73 of this approximately 100-page set of notes compiled by Herzog throughout his time investigating Damien's disappearance for this family. That lasted from September 28, 2002, to the last note, which was recorded on March 21, 2003. John Herzog spent 174 days on this case, give or take. Probably, let's be generous for a change and say he worked 200 days on this case. Damien had been missing for 300 days. Now, his disappearance was reported to police 10 days after it happened, and it wasn't until 126 days had gone by that Herzog was hired. 126 days for police to investigate without Herzog asking them for what amounted to a case review. In 126 days, the police did not visit Damien's apartment more than the one visit that happened on June 3rd, or more likely on June 4th, since Dana and Janine went to the department around 11.30pm on June 3rd to report Damien missing. They did not visit Jim Sarver's apartment or investigate it for physical evidence. They are inconsistent as to whether or not drug paraphernalia was found at Damien's place, but focused on figuring that out mostly in those 126 days. They told Herzog that they did not know whether Bryce Blackman had a car or a driver's license, but that he was the person believed to be driving Damien around the night he went missing. Damien's brother Stephen claims he was stopped, harassed, and questioned by police routinely in the months following Damien's disappearance, and family remembers him being pulled out of work to answer the same questions about drugs over and over again. We know that Stephen was given at least one polygraph examination, and we see the department preparing to conduct it in the note we covered last week where Tony Comenti asked Herzog whether he had a phone number for Stephen as he was going to be, quote, run on the box. 
Damien's best friend Dave was also an intended polygraph subject. And there's no indication that the last person to have seen Damien that day, Jim Siver, was polygraphed, but we know that he was questioned. He told me when I spoke with him last year that he initially withheld information from police because Damien was there to buy drugs and he was a drug dealer in the city. He told police Damien was there. He neglected to really explain to them what for or that, as he told me, he'd canceled the planned purchase of a pound of weed because he suspected Damien might have been a confidential informant for the police. James told me when we spoke last year that he called time and temperature while Damien was there, after Damien pulled out money that looked to him like it had been tainted by the hands of law enforcement. While Damien waited, James let the robot man on the other end of the line explain to him that the forecast for that weekend was cooler than usual, with rain predicted starting that night. But James spoke to the robot man as if he were a level higher than him on Warren's drug food chain and feigned disappointment that his guy couldn't get it. I'm going deep here, but 126 days is 18 weeks. It's 4.14 months. That's enough time to gather some phone numbers and run DMV checks. I'm sorry. It just is. The fact that Herzog had been hired to get the investigation in order, if it wasn't, and learn what he could at that point, and instead wound up trying to get Damien's family to fund his cooperation with the police department, is to me so egregious that I just, I need to harp on it. 40-year-old divorcee, mother of preteen twin girls. Hound, haunt, harp. My verbs all start with H. Anyhow, that's what's happened up to last week's episode. And then something else happened between March 11th and March 15th, and we don't know what that is because pages 74, 75, and 76 of this document are missing. The question as to where they are and what they say gets a little more pressing every day for me, honestly, because Herzog bloops back into his own report on page 77, where he says the following. Barb Roman is a certified dog handler and was involved in both searches. I advised that I would attempt to set up a meeting later to uh, meet Barb uh, regarding this matter. So I have questions. Who was Herzog advising that he was going to call Barb and... How had he learned that Barb was one of the dog handlers on the initial searches done for Damien's body? If you're new to Damien's saga this season, you need to understand that after his disappearance was reported to police, which was 10 days after the fact, on June 3rd, 2002, it was first reported to the Times Observer, Warren's local newspaper, on June 7th. So June 4th is out. The report came to police at 1130 at night, and that paper was likely already on its way to the press by then. Nothing could have been printed June 4th, and nothing could have been printed at all until the police told the newspaper that Damien was missing. Or if the family had gone to the newspaper independently. Maybe, but probably still not without the police backing it up. So I'm guessing that three days after it was reported to them, police reported Damien's disappearance to the newspaper on June 6th. The TO then printed it in the next day's edition as a blotter item. On page two of that day's edition... At the bottom right corner, tucked between a broken water line at PNC Bank on 2nd Avenue and a DUI, is the bolded heading, Missing Person. A missing person report has been filed with Warren Police. Missing is Damien Mark Sharp, 22, 19 Cedar Street. He was last seen on May 18th and has black hair, hazel eyes, and a muscular build. 
He wears black nail polish and has a large cross tattoo on his chest and changes his hair color often. He is a non-driver. Anyone with information is asked to contact police at 723-2700. Weirdly, the guy who called Damien's apartment while Dana and Stacy were checking on it before reporting Damien missing, that guy Albert or Albie, he is right after the DUI in this blotter for violating a protection from abuse order that happened at 405 Lexington Avenue on June 6th around 730 that night. It was just his presence at the residence that counted as a violation, so there's no indication that anything else happened, but he was taken into custody for it the day before Damien's newspaper debut. And 405 Lexington Avenue is three minutes on foot, one-tenth of a mile from Damien's place. It's just around the corner. They say it's a small world, but really, for all of us living here, then and now, it's really just a small city. It was on Thursday, June 20th, 2002, when divers, dogs, and their handlers and all manner of search, rescue, and recovery personnel descended on the Allegheny National Forest surrounding the city of Warren. They were from as far away as West Virginia, according to that T.O. piece, written by then-city editor Eric Paddock. Warren's district attorney, Rick Hernan, who you've met in past episodes, said in that piece that the explosion of effort and overwhelming presence of all those folks was, quote, a function of following down the leads, end quote, and, quote, the result of some information that had been received, end quote, though he, quote, declined to say what kind of information prompted the search, except that authorities were informed that the area in the vicinity of the bridges would be a good place to look, end quote. The bridges are the Morrison Bridge, often called the Casey Bridge by Warren County natives, and just before it, the Corn Planter Bridge, which people around here often call the Devil's Elbow Bridge. That bridge carries Route 59 traffic east and west over a small inlet of the Allegheny Reservoir known as the Devil's Elbow Fishing Area, or just Devil's Elbow, at the place where a little creek called Jake's Run feeds into the reservoir. People have hiked from Devil's Elbow up through the forest to the Jake's Rocks Recreation Area above, and since 2018, nationally recognized mountain bike trails have replaced hiking in the area largely. People also swam there back in the day. Actually, Damien's friend Danica, who you met a few episodes ago too, was swimming at Devil's Elbow that Thursday, June 20th, when the dogs showed up and kicked everyone out. Surreal. We always come back to that description from all his friends and his family. The whole thing. Bizarre as hell. Like Dave said, your best friend doesn't just go missing. Like, this shit doesn't happen to people. It happens to fictional characters, in books, or people on investigation discovery, he thought. Here's a weird fact. Damien's wallet was in his apartment when Janine was there, the day they reported Damien missing. Remember that Janine's sister Dana and Damien's stepmom Stacy were there a couple days before Janine checking the apartment out? But anyhow, I'm actually texting Damien's aunt, Anziette, as I write this because it's one of those details that I know I need to deal with, but I almost have to wait for the story to tell me when it's time. Right now feels like that time. Anziette has talked about his wallet to me, and I'm hoping that she can find out more about it and some of his other stuff for me. I'm going to get into more information on the wallet and what else actually exists of Damien's and the things that have been packed away for these 20 years, hopefully next week. We'll get back to all that, but understand that the searches went into the next day, as they were covered again on Saturday, June 22nd, when Hernan told reporter Victoria Barone that, quote, how long the search continues will be decided by the incident commander, 
determined by what the search has turned up so far. We haven't found Damien Sharp, and we're going to follow every lead, Hernan said. End quote. Asked about, quote, rumors that have circulated relating to the search, end quote, Hernan said, quote, that's the kind of thing that's really distracting to the folks that are trying to locate him. If anyone has any information, we definitely want to know about that. But it doesn't do anybody any good to just spread rumors. It obligates law enforcement to run rumors down and keeps them from following the real leads, end quote. Word. Sometimes people do that on purpose, though, and it's stupid as hell. Also comes with the gig. So these two stories, they're pretty explosive in a town like this in a newspaper. Multiple agencies coordinating for something as simple as a DUI sweep, for instance, garners one metric assload of attention among the natives. And now on Facebook, we can find all manner of wild speculation on groups and personal pages about what those loud bangs were on Canton Street just now or why there are cops flying up the four lane toward Walmart. We also have people learning the hard way why the newspaper isn't releasing any information about that bad, bad accident at the Y in Pittsfield yet. It's because it was a fatal accident. The family hasn't even been notified. And it's tacky as hell to tell anyone first except for them, let alone the whole world, on Facebook. Jesus, you animals. Anyhow, big photos, color ink, above the fold, looky here, people of Warren County, big shit going down in the forest, everybody everywhere, extra, extra, read all about it type of shit. Right? For two days. And then it's not until July that we see a one-column community piece with a small picture of Damien from his driver's license featuring the family begging for help. And then it's three more like it throughout the rest of that year. And then it's 2005, you guys, before Damien's face sees the light of day in that paper again. Now, yes, I'm going to tell you about dog searches then and now. But I reached out to Barb Rollman, who participated in the 2002 searches of the ANF, as well as a 2003 reboot, and there's a lot to unpack here. First, let me just give you a tiny taste of the science of cadaver dogs, because it matters. A whole big bunch, here in the next few pages of Herzog's notes. Let's just... <clears throat> bone up. I know, I'll see myself out. In about another 45 minutes or so. Let's go. So here's what's up. I get a ton of questions about whether or not a dog can even smell a body or the place where a body was placed for a short time even, days and weeks and months and years after the fact. And the answer is yes. I can't give you a full literature review, even though I'm late writing this episode altogether because I went real, real deep down a Google Scholar rabbit hole on the olfactory science behind cadaver dogs, but I won't subject you to the actual peer-reviewed research. What I really want is for Barb to explain all this sciencey stuff to you, but I met with her last week and she needed some time after we got the lay of the land we shared in this case, these 2002 and later 2003 canine searches of the ANF, and she's going to gather her notes from back then this week and get at me hopefully next week. My hope is that she'll be able to give you some more specific science as it relates to Damien's case. But we're at the edge of an abyss, you guys, and we'll be covering dog searches for at least a couple weeks. So for now, I'm going to rely on a handful of articles I read in Science, the Journal of Forensic Sciences, and a couple of interviews done with dog handlers across a number of cases, young and old, across a number of disciplines. From anthropologists using dogs to find ancient burial sites to detectives seeking out human remains in 20- and 30-year-old cases, 
There is strong evidence that human remains detection dogs are capable of some pretty amazing shit, including not just finding bodies, but finding them underwater, finding them decades after they've been entombed, and even just finding the sites of clandestine graves using leftover scent. So what exactly is that scent? We have no idea. Well, science doesn't know exactly yet, so lay people like you and I have no freaking idea whatsoever. We hear about it all the time in the true crime that we binge on a daily basis. Um, but what actually is the scent of death? And how do dogs smell it so much better than we do and for so much longer? When it comes to dogs, that's pretty simple. It starts with the fact that their noses are like a million times longer than ours. Where our noses have around 10 million olfactory receptors, the things that carry scent from our noses to our brains, which immediately go beep, beep, boop, like old-timey NASA computers, and tell us, ooh, snickerdoodles, or ooh, dog shit. Dogs' noses have around 200 million or more. What's more, their noses are specialized to differentiate between scents. So while our brains go, mmm, snickerdoodles, the dog's brain goes, mmm, vanilla and sugar and butter and chocolate and love. Magic, you guys. Life itself is magic. Scientists almost never, ever agree on anything, but they're always milling around the same basic ball field, except the crazy ones. We let those ones wander. Anyhow, it's just the biological difference between humans and dogs that makes this kind of forensic magic possible. But also, dogs don't generally get super excited over finding bodies unless we train them to do that. So that's the other part of it for the dogs. The actual science of detection dogs is a bit more mystical, but here we go, and I'll try to keep it simple, so pray for us. The actual scent of death is a combination of a lot of things that are influenced by a pretty significant number of variables, actually. So the first thing you really need to understand is that all cadavers come with a scent, but not all scents are created equal. The scent of any given cadaver comes from the active process of physical decomposition, so the bugs, bacteria, environment involved in any one cadaver's particular decomposition process will combine in a unique constellation to produce that cadaver's actual scent. It's a physical thing, even though you can't see it. If you took some specialized scientific equipment out to a burial site and tested the air around it, you'd come up with a list of numerous chemical compounds present that create the scent. But also, the physical properties of the body in question play a role as well. The amount of water, fat, protein, and carbohydrate in any particular body at a cellular level will create the body's aromatic signature as it decomposes. So you've got to add the individual characteristics of the body to the unique situational variables of the environment in which it's decomposing to get its unique singular death scent. That being said, not all bodies are created equal. The body of a human and, say, a white-tailed deer, for instance, are very different. How do we know this? Because as our collective social willies around things like death and cadavers decrease over time, we're finding more and more facilities, often referred to as body farms, where donated cadavers are left to decompose in various environments under various situational conditions so that we can figure out whether a cadaver dog can tell the difference between a decomposing human body hidden in the forest as opposed to, say, the many animal remains undoubtedly decomposing there as well. 
In other words, places that investigate the details of human decomposition for medical and forensic reasons have confirmed that any human body is going to smell different to a trained cadaver dog and its handler, that's important, than a pig or a deer or a cow or a lizard or a wookie cadaver would. I say it's important that we take cadaver dog handlers into account when we're looking at stories where they're used because the science of canine detection is an imperfect one by nature of the fact that it relies on humans to administer it. Humans are so, so fallible. We have wants and needs, like when dog handlers get out there with dogs that they've painstakingly trained over the course of two or more years, hoping to find a cadaver and maybe put a mother's questions at least to rest. They can do things like influence the dog, which really does not give one iota of the tiniest crap in existence whether it finds a body or not. The dog is laser-focused on a scent, a scent on which it's been imprinted and trained since as early as eight weeks of age, ideally, to alert its handler to. And while science can't define the distinct combination of scents that make up the scent of death that cadaver dogs are trained to find, it can narrow it down to a set of eight or ten common ones and then produce both biological and synthetic scents for handlers to train their dogs on. These places even produce scents that handlers don't want their dogs to tell them about ever because it would be a huge bummer to think they found a human and really they just found a hunter's gut pile from the last buck season. Dogs are trained to only ever alert when they smell the chemical components known to be produced by most human bodies at some point in most environmental conditions with a specificity and accuracy that's well into the 60th and 70th percentile according to science and even better by most accounts. Longitudinal science. Now, there are ethical considerations when it comes to the use of cadaver dogs, particularly in cases like Damien's is right now, a no-body case in which we're asking dogs to find where Damien's body might have been, knowing that after 20 years there may be nothing left but a few bones, and that those bones may have been scattered over God knows how much physical space over the course of two decades. Ethically, it's still rad as hell to use trained and proven, certified, science-backed, and evidence-based cadaver dogs and handlers in those situations, by all means. The more noses on the ground, the merrier to me. No one disagrees with that. What people, especially people involved with things like the Innocence Project, which works to overturn wrongful convictions that have kept people in prison for crimes they never committed, have issue with is when biased handlers and investigators use questionably trained dogs to quote-unquote smell dead bodies all over a favored suspect's shit. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is thousands of folks descending on the ANF, particularly in the area of Devil's Elbow, not really giving a whole lot of a shit who put him there at that point, and just focused intently on finding Damien's remains to return to his mother so that she could begin to grieve in as cohesive a manner as possible. When it comes to searching for human remains, what I'm telling you is this. Barb Rollman's dogs were trained to detect human decomposition and did not alert to the decomposing remains of any other species. Not ever. I can show you. Right after this quick break. kids, are you like me and looking to maybe pick up a cheap used car with some of that tax return? Do you have one to sell? Is it cheap? How many miles? 
you should call me. But first, you should call Greg Miller of Miller's Mobile Notary in Warren. Greg just got the Commonwealth's holy blessing to witness your most pressing legal signatures. And because he's rad, Greg's down for doing that in the evenings and on weekends because Greg is like you. He has a big boy job and he can't always make it to one of the few local brick and mortar notaries when they're open. So Greg knows the struggle and now he's here to help you with it. Not all heroes wear capes, but for an extra 20, Greg would probably do that too that's what you're looking for weirdo check out miller's mobile notary in warren pa on facebook for a complete fee schedule and to get more information and when you're ready to sell your husband's four-wheeler to his work enemy on a saturday afternoon so that you can force him to stay inside and fix the things all those things that need fixed just give greg a call at 814-706-1173 or 814-706-3230 that's miller's mobile notary your time is valuable. Let Greg come to you. Okay, so it's Saturday, March 15th, 2003, and we have no idea who he talked to about her, but Herzog talked to someone yesterday about Barb Rollman, and today he's about to talk to Barb herself. Let's hear what he learned. I called Barb Roman and uh, asked her feelings on the searches that were made uh, on Morrison Run Road and also at the Kinsu Dam and the Damien Sharp case. Uh, she said she would like to search both areas again. Uh, she said that the dog scented on a couple of areas near a pond and uh, it was near the end of the day and then everything was ended. Barb said that uh, all the handlers felt that uh, the area needed to be done again with the uh, possibility that the search be widened. Uh, she also said that uh, she would like to continue at the Kinzu Dam and uh, felt that some of the area was not checked uh, where the dogs were sending more. Uh, th that area needed to be checked by divers. Barb said that they were uh, never told why the searches ended or why the search wasn't continued the next day or sometime later. Uh, she said that a deer was found in the water and the police put the deer on shore and had our dogs check the area where they put the deer. She said that the police must have felt that the dogs were hitting on the deer. Uh, and she said our dogs were trained to react to only one scent. She said they did what the police wanted and checked the field where the deer part was placed and the dogs never paid any attention to it. Uh, she said that she'd be more than happy to assist again in these searches. And uh, she said that she and the other handlers all advised it would be a great help if they had a map of the currents in the area of the KC Bridge. I told her I would attempt to obtained those maps for her, and uh, she told me I should call Marsha Gadley in Clarion, PA. Uh, Marsha is a dog handler, and her dogs were on uh, both of those searches. I called Marsha Gadley, and after advising her why I was calling, she said that she had concerns about why the searches were stopped and why they were not continued later, uh, the next day or whenever. She said that she would be more than happy to assist us again in uh, any or all searches. I called Lieutenant Breck, and advised him of the information from both Roman and Gadley. So, like I said, Barb told me all this while I sat with her last week, and she provided a little more information, saying that in addition to Devil's Elbow, the groups searched camps along Morrison Run and at Chapman's Dam. I told Barb that I'd been able to generate enough interest in a pair of old leads that had gone previously unconnected to get law enforcement to put cadaver dogs out there last year, on Memorial Day weekend. 
Are you interested in any one particular area? Barb asked me. Devil's Elbow and Jake's Rocks, I told her. Barb nodded the way you nod and smiled the way you smile when you find yourself square on the same page as someone else, and I was encouraged. Last year's dog searches were unsuccessful, and I can tell you more about why this season, thanks to the department releasing Herzog's Notes. We'll get through all of that, but remember, I'm the preschool teacher, and we're crossing streets, so let's get that rope out again. Let's listen in again to the note of Herzog's that opened this episode, the one where he talked about the Morrison Run searches, and Sergeant Burns talking about the searches being called off too. After going over the report and realizing that the uh, search that was done in Morrison Run had resulted in a dog hitting near a campsite, and then several other dogs were brought in and they also hit, uh, there was something about a bone being found, and the search ended and was never finished. Uh, the search at the Kinzu Dam was also ended when the entire area had not been checked. I interviewed Sergeant Burns of the Warren County Sheriff's Office, who was a uh, member of the dive team, and uh, Burns told me that it was true that the search team had not completed its search when the detail was called off and it was never rescheduled. We spoke with uh, District Attorney Richard Hernan about searching the areas again and uh, also about searching Sarver's old apartment on Prospect Street. In June of 2002, Barb Rollman was a member of the Corn Planner K-9 team. She said there was enough interest in one spot on Morrison Run that she felt it could have been checked more thoroughly, but she couldn't remember the bone when we spoke on Friday. I'll keep at it, though, and she'll look through her notes and see what we can find. One thing I did learn from Barb from some documentation that she had is that the searches actually started as early as June 15th. She shared with me a few pieces of documentation, including a letter in 2003 from the Erie County Sheriff's Office thanking her for letting them participate in the search that was conducted then and offering to help in the future. But I just want to read you this one debriefing note from June 15, 2002, regarding Morrison Run. Quote, we were told at the debriefing that we were looking for a 22-year-old male, 5 foot 7 inches, 170 pounds, last seen May 25, 2002 in Warren County. Damien Sharp, blonde hair, dyed black, hazel eyes, maybe on crutches. We were instructed to go to Morrison Run and split into four groups. Team number five was directed to search various camping spots throughout the Allegheny National Forest. Reported back to command center around 1.30 p.m. After team number five had lunch, we departed from Minister Creek, came back to command center, and were instructed to assist searchers up Morrison Run. We reported to the blue location. Canine Balto showed interest in an area close to the water, to the right of the campsite. Barb Rollman and Canine Rowdy worked along the roadways of the blue section, showed little interest. All available teams were called in for a grid search, covered to the ridge, swung around and did another grid search in the southern direction. At final debriefing, two areas were discussed for further investigation, which were the pink and the blue sections. The officer said the blue section was done. Someone also suggested that the pink section needed further investigation. In any case, she said her team was at the water at Devil's Elbow, and she couldn't remember whether it was the game commission or a member of the sheriff's department. It's anyone's guess, Barb cautioned me, but someone on the official end of things, one of the authorities directing the overall search efforts that day, noticed a deer carcass in the water there and said he didn't think the dog's interest was legit because of it. How can a dog smell the difference between a dead person and a dead deer? Barb said she was asked directly 
Before, as Herzog described in his note, the deer carcass was pulled from the water and placed on the ground, and her team was instructed to work their dogs on it. The dogs showed no interest in that carcass, Barb told Herzog in 2002 and reiterated to me last Friday. None whatsoever. Because they get treats and pets and love and validation for finding people, not deer, and the chemical composition of a deer and a human cadaver are different, we've already covered that, all I can really say is that it's disappointing as hell, but not surprising at all. In 2002, nobody understood any better than they do today how cadaver dogs work biologically. No one does today either, except we've narrowed it down to a probable list of a dozen or so smells they might be responding to when they accurately and specifically locate human remains. Which they do consistently, all the time. It's understandable that a layperson unfamiliar with the science of cadaver dogs or their training might call for this little waste of time experiment, but it's disappointing. Because like Hernan said in that one news story, it's a distraction. It's a distraction from the goal. Is this the reason the entire thing was called off a day later? Who knows? Herzog didn't document that it was. Barb, though, said she heard whispers among a small subsection of everyone there during the overwhelming effort in June of 2002 that... Some things just aren't supposed to be found. It's odd to think that the entire search could be called off because one person or a few people were skeptical about the olfactory science of cadaver dogs. Unfortunately, it's just not surprising at this point. To me, at this point, nothing in this case is surprising anymore. Anyhow, Barb heard other things whispered about that weekend, too. As we sat together last Friday, talking about my own inaugural dog search experience and making connections between things that had puzzled me for two years about those news stories and the rumors of this search, she asked what ultimately took me to the Jake's Rocks and Devil's Elbow areas. Two tips, I told her, delivered to police through different means by unrelated people almost a decade apart. Did they have to do with a truck? Barb asked me. Um, yeah, I told her they did. I heard them in 2002, she said. Well, holy shit. I feel like I'd need to go on vacation with Barb to have a concentrated enough block of time to just ingest everything she knows and thinks and believes and worries and remembers about this case. It's the one that led to her group, Corn Planner Canine, sort of separating. This case, Barb told me, has haunted her for 20 years. I'm lucky as hell she's willing to talk to me and excited to bring her in again, hopefully next week, to share some of those memories and stories with you herself. But about that truck. The next note of Herzog's comes two days later, after he talked to Sergeant Burns, who confirmed from the Sheriff's Department end of things that the searches were called off and that no resolution as to what had come of them or why even members of the law enforcement dive team were given. Here's what Herzog wrote on March 19th. Herzog and someone, I'm not sure who because he didn't document the name, but because he was working so closely with the police at this point, I have to assume it was a member of the city's police department, though that's just speculation. Anyway, on March 19th, Herzog writes that he and this other person went to a location in Warren and interviewed someone who had told them that his friend was up at the Jake's Rocks Overlook and that a vehicle drove by her, and a short time later she heard two gunshots. This person told Herzog that his friend told him Damien Sharp was in the vehicle along with another person that she named. And he said that she talked to him a couple times about this. So Herzog and this other person went to this woman's place in Warren right after talking to the source. And they tried to talk to her, but her father, who she lived with, told them that she wasn't home and she'd be back in a few hours. 
They use that few hours to go have their only documented actual encounter with Pat, the kid who gave Damien that money for a pound of weed from Jim Sarver. Remember that one? Pat's dad called Herzog and said Pat had something to say after he'd blocked Herzog from talking to Pat the previous fall. And Pat was a minor, so what his parents said went, unless anyone wanted to really push that hard, and apparently no one really did. Anyhow, that spring, Pat's dad called Herzog and told him to come on up because Pat wanted to share some info. When Herzog got there, Pat changed his mind, basically. Once they finished with Pat that day, they went back to her place. It was then that she told Herzog, quote, On Memorial Day 2002, she went to Jake's Rocks Overlook and was sitting in her truck when a pickup truck went by her vehicle. The truck was an older model red Ford full-size pickup. When the truck went by, sitting in the passenger seat was Damien Sharp. He had black hair and was wearing a white t-shirt. When the truck went by, the person who I thought was Damien leaned forward and waved at me. The driver was approximately 37 years old and had long blonde hair and a mustache. The driver was kind of out of place. He was a scumbag. The truck went by me and a couple of minutes later I heard two shots. I got there around 1.30 and I left at 2.18 p.m. I've never seen the truck before or after that I noticed. I saw one other vehicle while I was there. After I heard the shots, I wanted to get out of there, and the truck was headed down towards Scenic Drive, so I headed down 160 towards Warren. Where the shots came from was back towards 160. I've never partied with Damien, but I did see a flyer about a week ago, and I feel it was him. The truck was a faded old truck, one that even if you waxed it, it would not shine. The map indicated that the road to the overlook makes almost a circle. It comes off 160 and circles back on 160. She advised that the shot was in the area where the road comes back to 160 and just down the road from a stop sign heading towards Scenic Drive. It could be on either side of the road. Herzog notes at the end of this page that if this is a possible sighting, it would only indicate that he was in the area before his disappearance, and the sighting might have something to do with his disappearance and not that he was shot at this time. Um, well, shit. Now... I can tell you that I had this tip as early as August of 2021, along with the second tip I connected it to, which came to the police around 2012. But I only had the bullet points. Red truck, blonde, mustached driver, older than Damien. Jake's Rocks, second overlook, two minutes from sighting to gunshot. The tip, from what I knew that August, came in March of 2003, a year after Damien went missing, short a couple of months, and I had the tipster's name. And that was the most interesting part of the entire tip to me, honestly, because the second tip, the one that came around 2012, that one named the first tipster's brother, saying that he'd confessed to killing Damien Sharp at Devil's Elbow. That person was willing to go on tape for me. The first tipster was not. However, the person she spoke to who brought the information to Herzog initially he told me he'd let me know by the end of this week whether or not he'll talk to me. So let's all cross our collective fingers and pray like hell that the answer to that question is yes, you guys. Like hell. So next week we'll dig into both of these tips and how I connected them and what happened at the dog search that we did on Memorial Day at Jake's Rocks and Devil's Elbow last year. That's all next week, you guys. We'll dig into all of it. Next week. Oh my god, I know. Okay. I love you next week. Smoke is a weekly true crime podcast written and told by me, Stacy Gross of Two Moms Media. Your producers are me and Brian Hagberg of Your Daily Local. 
Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by my father, Bob Gross. Dean Wells provided the voice of John Herzog in this episode. Big thanks, Dean, for that. If you have information to share with police about Damien or his case, call Detective Tiffany Post at 814-723-2700. If you have stories, memories, or information about Damien or his case that you don't want to share with police, text me instead at 814-230-5855. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you're using to listen. It makes a big difference for us, and it also helps more people learn about Damien and his case. Until next week, kids, eyes and ears open, and let's find Damien. Hey guys, a bunch of you have asked me what I'm going to be working on when this season wraps up. I know everybody knows this is the end of the Smoke podcast. For Two Moms Media going forward, I've been looking for something to cover, and there are so many options. There are a lot of big options, cases like the Kathy Wilson case, other stories that deserve a lot more attention than they're getting or than they have gotten in the past in the county. But I wound up talking to Jamie Kramer a couple weeks ago from the Warren Wrecking Dolls, and we were talking about their season opening and just different ways that we could maybe cross-promote. Jamie and I came up with the idea for a podcast that explores the facets of derby life through the dolls, but also some of the bigger ticket items that go along with that life. I don't know very much about roller derby, except that I really like the cathartic idea of it. I just don't have the skeletal fortitude anymore to be a full-fledged member of this team. These girls are hardcore. (laughs) What I would love to do is learn more about it, though, and go through a season opening, follow some new faces into the derby life, and catch up with some returning faces and some ladies who've been around this team for a hell of a long time. Find out what motivates somebody to stick with it and what the commitment actually is. Learn the rules, soak up some of the vibes, and present them all to you so that you can learn right along with me. Not only that, but this project is also about women empowering women. So as we go through the season with the dolls, they're going to learn how to podcast on their own from me, and I'm going to learn more about how to organize Two Moms Media more into something that can pull some funding and start making a bigger difference on a community level. I can't explain to you how excited I am to be working with this team, and I'm really excited about what I think this project can become. So as I sit down with them, and as we talk more about how we're gonna structure everything and work it and publish it and present it to you, I will keep you posted on that. All of those updates though are gonna come after Damien's season. I'm not going to put more of these promotions into Damien's show. I just wanted to bring it up here because I got the final word today that the team is good with it. So here we go. Roller derby time coming up this spring. Follow the Warren Wrecking Dolls though on Facebook for information about their season opening and keep an eye on my social media for updates from the two moms and 